Welcome to the Suffering Podcast. Each week, we walk you through how suffering is the way to sustainable success and the path to greatness. We can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and many more. Visit thesufferingpodcast.com for complete details. Please subscribe and like to get our latest episodes as soon as they drop. Follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn for exclusive content. Please comment. We may read your comments on future shows or even reach out to you for a future guest appearance. Let's embrace how suffering forges bonds that last forever, showing we are never alone. So get ready, get ready, sit down, sit down, and strap it, strap it. Sit your ass down, down. Sit your ass down, down. Let's talk about the suffering. It's time to start the pain. Sit your ass down, down. Sit your ass down, down. Strap it, strap it. This is gonna hurt, gonna hurt. Dented Development Project is a 501c3 nonprofit organization with a mission to assist first responders and their families repair dents caused by suffering. Help us support the ones who take care of us selflessly. Dented things can still operate, but may not be as pretty as they once were. Make a difference and go to DentedDevelopmentProject.com to get involved today. Our heroes need our help. All new Suffering Podcast gear is here. The show depends heavily on our supporters to get the word out. Let people know that suffering is a team sport and no one is alone in their struggles. Wearing the Suffering Podcast merchandise accomplishes that goal. Check out our store at thesufferingpodcast.com or check our show notes for the link. Your support and love means everything to us. When we are young, we truly believe that we are immortal. Our invulnerability carries us into a situation that the experienced life traveler may steer clear of. Young life is fun. It's carefree. It's exciting. Until it's not. Until our mortality rears its head. It's been said that the moment we cease to be a child is the day we realize that someday we're going to die. But there's no reason to rush towards death. Our childish habits don't have to define us. They don't have to continue. We can free ourselves from the pessimistic bonds of the aftershocks that come with the recognizing of mortality. I'm Kevin Donaldson here with Mike Felice, and on this episode of The Suffering Podcast, we sit down with Andrew T. to discuss the suffering of heroin. Andrew has dealt with his addiction, but stands here today to testify that it's not who he is but what he did. Andrew, thank you so much for sitting down with us today. I appreciate you coming all this way. Thank you for having me. And you did come quite a long way today, I must say. I drove out to Comac, Long Island. Yeah, that was was almost a suicide attempt, especially driving through New York City. I know, the potholes especially. Holy cow. Crazy, right? I've been to Long Island probably four or five times, got lost every time. GPS got me lost every time. And you're, dri- it out. you're driving through, and I was stuck in traffic when I was going out there. And I'm looking, I'm, I'm in New York City. I'm like, man, this place is dirty. <laughs> this place is really dirty. Yeah, it's <laughs> disgusting. <laughs> I need to take a power washer to those, some of those bridges. <laughs> Don't you need to like shower when you get out of New York City? <laughs> you, it's like, the, it's like the, the haze that sits on you or something like that. Yeah, I would never drive to the city. I would just take the train, honestly. It's just a lot easier. Yeah, just that, Penn Station. That, that joy, that joy of not having to sit in that traffic, I, that I get. Penn Station smells like urine. Though. It's the worst it's ever been. <laughs> Literally the worst it's ever been. Have you been in there recently? Like two, three weeks ago. Really? It's really bad. Really bad. Yeah, that's mm. that's political stuff we don't la, get la, into. La, 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 we la. don't we don't talk politics on the show. Anyway, before we get into it, let's get into this week's social media question, and this one comes from Ron. Now you know everybody asks you who your greatest influence is. You've, you've, you're asked that on job applications. You're asked that when you, you meet somebody or if you're going on a date with somebody. This one was kind of interesting. It says, who is your second greatest influence? 
Because obviously in your life, there's many people who influence the person that you are today. I thought it was kind of interesting. Andrew, we'll go, we'll go with you. What do you think? I think my second biggest influence, well, I have a bunch, so it's, it's not, not too hard of a question. Honestly, I would say Russell Brand. Russell Brand, the actor? The actor. Okay. Yes. Explain that one a little bit. So I read his book. He has a book based off the 12 steps of like the NAAA program, all mm-hmm. the 12 steps, but he writes it in a way that everybody could work the steps. So I read that and then I went up doing more research on him and just found out that he's in long-term recovery. Right. And he tell he talks about it frequently. He's very open, honest, and he advocates change and we have a lot of the same viewpoints. And I actually like emailed his foundation. He supposedly him, but sent me like this whole thing back and you know, I watch his YouTube his YouTube's interesting. I know he's left. I know he sits left. But he, he is uh, one of these rare people these days who will sit down with anybody. His, one of his interview with Ben Shapiro was fantastic. I mean, it was really good. Ben Shapiro, obviously ultra right. Russell Brand, I, I don't know this for certain, but I think that he's, he leans left. For the most part, I know he's anti-lockdown, anti-a lot of things, COVID, but uh, for the most part, yeah. That's just pro-common sense is what that is. <laughs> but but for an audience, and we do this here, Mike and I, we have ma- many different discussions because people who we have in here with different issues and different problems, we don't always agree with their, their side, but we're willing to listen to them. And I think that's, that's where Russell Brand, and it's Joe Rogan the same way, that's what they do. They're willing to listen to both sides. Mike? I know you're going to have a tough one with this question nah, man, because you only know one person. I know three. So. <laughs> and you're one of them. And you're definitely not one of my fucking influences. Oh, I just might influence you in a bad way. <laughs> you know, I always said my father's my first influence and definitely my second will be my mother. Uh, you know, my parents were divorced when I was young and my mother was a hard worker. She had three jobs and, you know, she was out there digging and dying every day. And, and that made me become a man because, I mean, I was nine, 10 years old. And my mother wouldn't get home till nine o'clock at night. You know, so I had to fend for myself. I started doing my own laundry at nine years old. And because my mother was that, that caring and hardworking that she wanted to provide for us. You know, coming back from Florida with you, I heard some of the stories about your mother and you know, that's what, that's what every parent should be. You sacrifice everything for your kids. You've had your time to make stuff work and Hey, stuff, life goes on, stuff doesn't work out in your life. But it's those parents that are willing to sacrifice themselves because, and it, are you a parent, Andrew? No. You're not, not, not that, that he knows of. You think you know what worry is before you're a parent? And I, I'm, I'm guilty of this as well. I thought I knew what worry was, but when I became a parent, I really knew what worry was because you can only truly worry and be fearful of anything when you love something more than yourself. People without fear don't love anything more than themselves. This question for me, Ron, was, was tough. My first was obviously my grandfather. My second, and Mike, keep your head small. I'm going to say it's you. You see that? You see that? I just took the high road on you. Now you feel like a giant dick for saying it's not me. Yeah, you take the high road. I take the psychopath. (laughs) (laughs) And I'll tell you why. Because there's certain people in this world that you you have the ability to trust, to be able to tell them anything and not be judged, to know they come from a place of understanding. It's something that has been very rare in my life. It hasn't happened every day. Mike and I aren't perfect people. We have our own damage. So we call each other up and like, he knows it's not going any further than me. So I'll say, hey, you know, Mike, you know, I got this, I got this stuff going on. I'm not real happy about it, you know, this, that. And I know I'm going to get an honest answer from him. I might not always like the answer. I might not always agree with his answer, but I know it's going to be honest, honesty from his perspective. And I think that's something that everybody needs in their life. Ron, thank you very much for sending this in. Keep sending in your questions. We'll try to get them on the air. Now, Andrew, Andrew T., in this episode, because it is about a very sensitive subject, the subject of the suffering of heroin, we have chosen, we have had multiple conversations, you would prefer to keep your last name out of this. Explain that a little bit, why you want to keep your last name out of it. I'm interested to find out. I personally... I love telling my story and I'm very passionate about it um, because if I didn't go through what I did, I wouldn't be where I'm at today. But the problem is there's still a strong stigma on addiction, especially when you use the word heroin. I feel like you could If tell, they were to say oxy, it would be different. Yeah, if I were to just say painkillers, oxy, it would be- Yeah, it's like socially coke. acceptable now. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, the second that you use the word heroin, you know, people's brain just switches and then 
you know, for potential Google search, anything like that, you know, like a potential employer down the dating girls search you, you know, they see that without me explaining my story and being in recovery. It's just a a lot of headaches. Well, you know, it, like we say it all the time, it's a stigma. You know, you, you think about heroin. The first word that comes to my mind would be junkie. Correct. Right. But you think about oxy. They're not a junkie. They're not a junkie. They're just addicted to, you know, oxy. And the funny thing about it is there's so many more functional heroin addicts than people realize. Yes, you do. The the junkies on the street, the one that they're they're bending over and they're almost falling down, those those get the optics, those get the the, the views. And they are fun to watch those. They, they, let's you just take bets on and see if they're going to fall over. <laughs> no, I, they never fall over. <laughs> they never fall over. <laughs> no, You're right. They never fall over. It was in front of UMDNJ in Newark. And we used to sit there because we, we, if we were serving warrants or something and watch them. God, I don't know. Their, their sense of balance. I don't know. Heroin must inject but the you sense have, of balance. You have one too many drinks and you're falling over. Right. But this guy's shooting up like yeah. nine I, bags of heroin and he's standing up. I have fallen over walking up the <laughs> stairs. Okay. And these guys are, their heads nearly touching the ground and they're, they're standing straight. Uh, we know someone that fell downstairs. I'm not going to mention Eric's name, but he got drunk one day and <laughs> fell downstairs. His legs are so short, though he probably just rolled. Sorry, Eric. Yeah, so so I do understand that, and we so for this for the purposes of this episode, you will be Andrew T. And, and T's not even his real last initial. Co- correct. <laughs> <laughs> so why don't you tell our audience a little bit about yourself? All right, I'm 32 years old, born and raised on Long Island. What was it like coming over to the bridge into, into the Garden State? You well, want to go back real quick, For right? the past year, I said I want an exotic vacation, and I came <laughs> to New Jersey. Everybody who comes from the island says, it's a big deal when you cross the bridge. Yeah, I've lived there, born and raised there, had a, a very normal childhood, like working class family. My dad was an entrepreneur, did really well, graduated college, did all the normal things, wound up moving to Israel, lived in Israel for a little bit. That's right. I didn't, I didn't, you're, you're, you're part of the tribe. See, Mike, yeah. you're not part of the tribe. <laughs> It's only me. It's only I'm only six percent, but at least you know let me in. It's better it's, than zero. I'm trying. I'm trying. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I got zero. We'll yeah, see. he's well. He's a big zero. What, what do you want? Listen, maybe someday you'll be chosen. Don't worry about it. Listen, I'm a quarter Albanian, so you know you guys aren't in my tribe. <laughs> well, you have one. You have one guy who's got your back being an Albanian. Exactly. That's, that's the only reason you say Albanian, and that's why I keep bringing it up. One I, of our good friends is John Elite, and he's totally Albanian, and he was, used to be a hitman for the mafia. That's why Mike touts that he's Albanian. Because I never heard that he was Albanian until we were getting John Leo. Now, all of a sudden, he's big fucking Mr. Albanian. Oh, I forgot to tell you, I'm Muslim now, too. You're Muslim now? <laughs> Whatever it takes. <laughs> but I have watched a lot of different interviews with you. You said something. You spent time in Israel. And it was, was it Tel Aviv? Uh, Jerusalem. Jerusalem? Yeah. Because I heard Tel Aviv is like crazy. It's like Miami, but it, better. Yeah. It's, yeah. I, I've, I've seen some stuff on it. And you, you, you went to some classes. So explain that. So it was 2012. I had just graduated college. The Jews always got the good programs. And uh, <laughs> I had to go every week for like two months to this thing on Wednesday nights in college, get a free meal, like hang out with a bunch of Jewish people, and you get a free trip to Israel. Not like the one everybody knows about, Birthright. This was separate. I wound up going there. It was right after I graduated. I had already been there once, and I loved it, you know? And I had family there. My cousin works for the Department of State. He was stationed there. I wound up getting a job as a bouncer at a bar there, bar club, met an Israeli girl and wound up like staying there for like six, seven months. The one thing I grabbed onto is you said that they've lowered the standards to get this program where you can be like 4%. Yeah. I'm in. I'm in. I'm ready to start taking classes. I'll I'll read my Torah. I'll do whatever I got to do. You just heard free dinner and a Jew came out and you're like, I'm going. <laughs> yeah, free anything. Free. Listen. <laughs> 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 to all my Jewish friends, including Chantel, who is our friend, who is also Jewish. You're going to offend Chantel, Mike. Nevertheless, I, I think that's a wonderful little program. Are you married, kids? Not uh, married. Not married. Stay that way. Mm. Yeah, you, you'll, you'll have a, a better time of it because we're here to talk about some suffering. Now, I know that everybody has their own suffering story. Otherwise, you wouldn't be sitting in this chair if you didn't have a little bit of dents, a little bit of damage. So why don't you go ahead and tell us your greatest suffering story? My greatest suffering story would be... Just a snapshot. It doesn't have to be beginning to end. Yeah, no problem. Yeah. I think, you know, I had done painkillers for a few years. I had an injury in the gym. I didn't get them prescribed, but this was, you know, like 2013. Yeah, they were all over the place at that time. Oh, it was all over. Somebody Readily accessible. Yeah. Somebody I'd worked with had them. I already knew all about it, was never into it. I was always, you know, a party type, party in college, high school, like sports and stuff. 
I did that for a few years. I was in the car business. Before you, before you tried these, these painkillers, have you ever? Did you ever dabble when you were in college, or was this the first time you had an injury and he took it specifically for the injury? But was it ever a party thing for you? Uh, opiates or drugs? O- uh, opiates. Um, party thing? No. 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 And that, you know what? I never understood that as a as a because I I've. Listen, I've been addicted to opiates before because of surgery, mm-hmm. and it's not fun. No, like, it's not. It's, it's an isolating drug. Yeah, it's you not, know. But the the one problem I had with the opiates was when you stop them, your pain receptors wake up, and it hurts. Like everything hurts. The gravity hurts. Did you go through a similar experience? All the time. But I see my that's pain. that's part of the addiction, though, because you don't want that pain coming back. Right. You t- well, you just have to take a little bit more to to get normal because you fall so far below. You know, it's, it's, and, and it's one of those things you can't drop either. You got to wean yourself off of it. You know, it's not good for you though. Yeah. No, I, my injury was minor. It was a injury in the gym Yeah. when I threw my back out and I couldn't like move for three days. So I had done them for a few days. And after that, I was like, I was hooked automatically. Well, Cause you get very comfortable in those three days. You know, the, the oh, pain's gone. And, amazing. Oh yeah. Yeah. You just lay in there and say, Hey, I, I can get used to this. Yeah. Do you remember what you were paying per pill back then? Back then it Still thirty bucks. It was still thirty bucks a yeah, pill. Yeah, that was like when they really started raising. I think it was oh, like okay. the late two thousands, early two thousand tens was when it yeah. went from like ten, fifteen, twenty to to thirty. How many were you going through a day? In the beginning, it was just one, and then it it gradually, you know, progressed. Because I had a lot of money at the time, I was doing really well work wise. I would say like three, four, five a day. Then you're talking one hundred and fifty dollars a day. Yeah, that's crazy too. Because I know right now. You can get a glassine baggie in one of the inner cities of heroin for about three dollars. That's what it's down to now. I, when I left law enforcement, it was around six, seven dollars. But now, how much was it the last time you bought one? Yeah, I don't. I don't go down there to buy them. Get somebody to buy them for me. <laughs> the best but, way to do it. Yes, but listen, that way I don't get arrested, right? And now you got to pay for the Uber and everything. Now you can't take your own car over. No, there. <laughs> no, no. But so that's crazy that you get a similar effect. Right, I'm not a her- I'm not a heroin user, but you can't afford the opiates, thinking that they're safer, and they're not. They're not safer. So you, what do you? What's your next step? I I got to get something, so I go with the heroin, and that's how the addiction starts. How far down the rabbit hole did you go with opiates? Just opiates. The thing is, is is I always had money with them. You know, I was able to function as long as I had them. I had a, a good connect plug, drug dealer, whatever you want to call it, and. I was like two and a half, three years functioning good with them. And then the money started to, to dwindle. Then it started to like really affect my life, uh, my bills. It got to the point where it was just the one day where I think the guy was out of the pills and I had friends that were hooked on heroin already. And he's like, it's so much cheaper, like you were saying. You know what I mean? And I knew that, but I was better than that. I was just an opiate just paid killers, like I would never touch that. Right, know? it's it's the, the, stigma. the stigma we were talking yeah, about. You know, are you addicted to heroin or opiates? Which one sounds better? But they're both equally as damaging. Of course. Yeah, that's that's crazy though, and, it, and then so you you flip over into the heroin side of it. And this is all while I'm wearing a suit to work. You know what I mean? How many pills were you taking a day at your highest? Five. Still, man, that's it's 150 milligrams because they're 30 milligrams. You know, that's cr- a lot. It's just it's just the, the it's thing. It's gonna be damaging to your body too. I'm sure it's it can't be good for you. Any pill is, is bad for your liver, right? What's the what's the long term effects as far? I mean, I'm sure you're you're a lot more well educated than I am on on the opiate problem as far as long term effects on your body. What what would you say they were? I think the main thing has to do with your whole, you know, your internal, like you know, going to the bathroom. Sort opioid really induced constipation. You up. Yeah, I felt that. Yeah. So I like I said. So my 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 story is pretty basic. You know, I, I had shoulder surgery. Doctor said take these whether you need them or not. Take them every three or four hours. And that's exactly what he told me. That's crazy. And he pres- kept prescribing them for three months. So I, I knew I had to go back to work. So I said I got to I got to stop taking these. I can't go to work on opiates, opioids, and the pain of trying to get off this thing took me two or three days to kick. Everything just came alive. It was just a god awful feeling. I, I knew it wasn't right. I knew you had right. these doctors back in the day that were over prescribing. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it's it's been said that doctors were getting kickbacks from pharmaceutical companies the more pills they pushed out. I wouldn't doubt so, it. That's a fact. Yeah. So the doctors are just here, like you said. Take them whether you need them or not, because now th- those pills are going out. 
The doctors prescribe her more pills, and the doctors get more money from the pharmaceutical companies. Did you ever try to go get them legally? Since you were, since you had a good job, I'm assuming you had insurance, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, no, that was, uh, it just wasn't necessary for me, you know? I thought about it, but then, you know, I'd be in the system for that, because uh, they had, like, the tracking system that was new, like... Now your job would know about it. And... Yeah, and it's just, you know, when you're in, you have, like, an opiate prescription, and you're seeing pain management, regardless of how shady and corrupt the doctors are, like, you're in that system. It's like when I went to the hospital for an overdose, that's in there, you know, it's in my records. You know, just to go on your point real quick, the whole thing with that is... The, the big pharma companies, they marketed these pills as only 1% of people get addicted. That was the whole spiel, So, which false. was yeah. beyond false. That's you know what really, really started it. And the kickbacks, of course. You, Everything goes on green. Everybody's yeah. making money off of something. Oh, wait, till, wait till the pharmaceutical companies get involved in the cannabis industry. Mm. They're going to destroy it. You run out of pills. Now you have friends who are doing heroin. To t- ex- explain to me the first time you did heroin, what that was like first time i did it was 2016 so it was like three years shoot it or snort it no i snorted i was way i it took a while to progress to uh to shooting it but i had i think i was getting a little sick it had been a certain amount of hours and my friend and he he knew because he he knew he could charge me whatever if he charged me back then like 15 a bag you know i still get two bags for what i would have got for one pill you know what i mean so for him he's getting it at seven eight and i was so nervous you know, I already had a really high tolerance to, to opioids, but I remember the first time I was like in his car at work and, uh, I was just scared on how much to do. And then I did it and that's just a disgusting taste, but I did such a little amount compared to what I would have done for a pill. And I felt, you know, like a stronger sensation, a stronger rush. And I was like, oh. well, it, when you were in college, back up, back up a second. So had you ever snorted cocaine any of that oh yeah okay so you so you're familiar with the feel yeah yeah okay of course all right so snorting but snorting heroin from what i understand is it has to be ultra pure for you to snort it or it should be ultra pure should should be be. (laughs) no fentanyl i guess you know (laughs) i mean you don't see scarface snorting heroin right so you snort it you have that initial sensation and you just go on this ride correct yeah, I knew, you know, it was basically at that point, I didn't care about the stigma. I didn't care about, you know, anything except for the fact that, like, I could save money, make it last longer. And like and still feel the same. Still feel the same. If well, you know, they, they, they said back in the day, and, you know, I was never a drug guy, but they say you do one hit of crack and you're hooked. Was that the same way it was for heroin? Was that, like, the same feeling you got? Like, you said you did your first line and you just went, like... Yeah, I, I knew, so I think kinda... even before that, with just the sensation of an opioid, you know, with the, that whole sensation, I knew that I sh- this was over, you know? This this was your new thing of choice? Is that what you felt? Yeah, without yeah. a doubt. And Now, you're still going to work, still with a suit and tie, correct? Yeah, that only lasted three months once I made the switch to heroin. No kidding. Yeah. What, what happened with your job? Or you just lost, it was apathy, you just lost interest? Oh, no. Well, that's part of it. Definitely lost interest. I had to be leaving work to go, like, meet somebody at a certain time, you know? Like, I would just, I didn't care about anything. The job, um, I wound up. So work got in the way of your addiction. Mm-hmm. Oh, always. Like, my car got repoed after three months. Like, I lost my job. It was a disaster of uh, three months. And that's after, like, three years of functioning on the the pills. Listening to that story, so maybe the opioids were a little bit better than, than heroin. I don't know. Yeah. I think so. It's hard to explain. Yeah. It, it's so you have, you know, you're an addict regardless. I'm an addict, but like the chase with heroin and like needing it is so much more intense than when you don't have the pills. The coming down off of it. The coming down and like how much more you crave it and like will do things that you normally wouldn't do. It's just different between heroin and, and the painkillers. I don't know what it is because they're based, you know, they're similar. Well, now, how how did you get it? Did you were you like going to street dealers for the heroin? the heroin? Yeah, street dealers. Yeah. Was there was there ever that fear of like getting locked up or set up or anything like that? Mm, well, I went to pretty bad areas. There was always a fear, but it didn't matter because as soon as I got it, I didn't care where I was. I was doing it. I wasn't waiting till I got. You know, I always had to drive a little out east, so it was never like around the block. It was always like a half hour drive home, and I would do it right when I got it. I understand how you're explaining this because 
I didn't grow up with any little babies. Like none of my, I don't have cousins that like, I just, I never held a baby. I become a police officer. Now what happened? Pencil. If you go to Pennsylvania, a bag is $30 because of transport and mm-hmm. stuff like that. But if you go into Newark, it was like six or $7. So they used to drive from Pennsylvania, pick up and drive back. But in, in, in Roseland where I worked, they would have to stop, which was exit six on 280. They would have to stop. They'd pull in the same spot every time, assuming their car windows didn't get broken out because it was so stupid. The, the money's up on the visor while it's in the center console you, and all their windows are broken out. So you know, you ask them, what are you doing? Oh, nothing, nothing. They just jump me. I'm like, yeah, sure. I was very, I was brand new. We come across this car sitting in the dark. We light them up. We see three heads in the car. We go over there. They're shooting up. All of them are shooting up. And then I look in the pass and I look in the back seat. And there is about a six or seven month old baby. And that that's something that really stuck with me because how bad is this drug that you're willing to do it in front of a six or seven month old? And it was there, you know, it was two of the people in there, their children. How bad is this addiction that you're willing to do it in front of a six or seven month old, put it, put them at possible danger of driving under the influence now, I picked the baby up. The baby's diaper was so wet that it actually soaked through the diaper. And it, for those of you who who know anything about diapers, it takes a lot of yeah. liquid to soak through a diaper. My arm was soaked, and I'm thinking to myself, I can't believe this. I can't believe this is this is going on. On that particular case, two of the people, the men in the car, took the wrap so the mother could go home with the baby, which I thought was was honorable. However, that's when I first realized how bad that drug is. It's a good, a good point, you know, yeah. good starting point to well, realize. I mean, how many of these people steal? I mean, I don't, I don't know if you did it, but like stealing from family, oh, yeah. just to get the money to. Well, you know, I used to all the time. You know, I mean, how, your how many? My mom, yeah. yeah. How many times you see people hawking their family's jewelry just to get money for that fix? There was there was a kid that I knew who I I used to bring to the gym with me when he was about seventeen. He didn't have a father, and I lost contact with him. Well, he got hooked into heroin, and I talked to his mom years later when I because he actually one of our guys arrested him. He mentions my name, which I got me got me really mad. But he had went away to prison for heroin. His mother said I had to sleep on my purse when he was living in there because he would steal stuff. Then when she moved, think about this because Mike, your father, think about not telling your kids where you moved because you know what's going to happen. He's going to show up and he's going to steal stuff from you. Then he goes to prison and some really bad stuff happened to him in prison. I think he got raped. Mm-hmm. That's again, that's another example. This this is just an awful, awful drug. You know, at one time it was socially acceptable to to do it. You know, you looked at back in the early 1900s, mm-hmm. it, was, it was in everything. How much heroin at your peak do you think that you did oh, per day? At my peak, a gram, a gram and a half, which would be like 30 bags probably, if you equated. A day? 30, yeah, 30 yeah. glassine bags. Yeah, because you get to a point where you're doing it like three, four bags at a time, you know. Obviously, anywhere you go, the bags are different size, but, you know, that's what my peak when I had money, like I would pick up that amount. That wasn't for a long period of time, but that's what my tolerance got up to. You you had said you both snorted it and shot it. Yeah. Okay. Explain to me shooting it. Explain to me what made you cross over. Very, very similar to how I originally crossed from, you know, the the, uh, the painkillers to heroin is I did not have a lot of heroin. You know, at this point, like you're talking, now we're like going to 2018. So it's like two years of sniffing, right? And there was like some clean time, rehab, detox, whatever. So on and off two years, you know, I had met somebody in rehab. You always meet more people in rehab. It's it's just a, a place for you to get new connections, basically. Um, <laughs> criminal school. Exactly. Yeah. You're, you're, it's just like going to jail. You Addic- know? I shouldn't say criminal. Addict school. You know, like, oh, people in jail, you know, you get two robbers that you put them together and they start comparing notes and then they get out of jail and... That's why they call it college. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> listen, you can not talk to anybody, but it, it's going to make the experience terrible, you know? But uh, to answer your question... So I had met somebody and, you know, at that point I had a really good drug dealer, really good connect, like the best stuff on the island. Literally, I told him that, you know, everybody says their person has the best stuff, but this was like for real. He had reached out to me after uh, rehab. He's like, oh, can you get me some of that stuff? And me, who's like two, three weeks clean, I didn't even have, I was like, sure, you know. And then I started hanging out with him for a little bit. And you don't then, want to be a quitter. 
No, yeah, I wasn't ready to quit. I uh, hung out with him. I was still sniffing it. Every time I sniffed, he's like, why are you still sniffing it? And he would, like, you know, shoot up right in front of me. I'd see people shoot up for a while. And I, even that, you know, I was doing heroin, but I was looking at the needle like, this is, like, another level. Like They're real junkies. Yeah, they're <laughs> no, I'm, I'm only sniffing still, it. still, <laughs> like, 80% there, you know? This is my rehab thing all the time. So I went to rehab for alcohol. Yeah, yeah. Okay? And when I showed up at rehab, I realized real quick, I'm not an alcoholic. You guys are alcoholics. <laughs> Right where you're looking at, oh, so you you're, you got the opioid. You're like, I'm not an addict. I'm on I'm on oxy or whatever I am. And then you start sniffing heroin. I'm not a real junkie because I sniff it. Yeah, I'm <laughs> yeah. not shooting it. I'm not shooting it. It's it's the progression thing because addicts are real good at justifying what they do. That's why they, they become addicts. Of course. You know, when you were doing it, like what in the back of your mind at that time, what was your thought process of why you were able to continue doing what you were doing? So I've been asked that question before. I feel like the best way to really explain it, first of all, y- your thoughts are not the same as when you're a normal, sober, clean person. So I say you're basically in tunnel vision. Like the drugs, you're in the fast lane to get the money, get the drugs however you can. And every little thing on the outside, the exterior stuff, is just on the outside. Well, the drugs become number one to you. You know, they, and they, your body, you know, it's just as important as food, water. Well, they were more important than that because I couldn't eat or drink if I didn't have the drugs. So <laughs> That's a good way to put it. So to an addict, the drugs become as important as food and water. It's, it's you know, it's the truth. And yeah, it's the same story as, uh, you know, I had a little bit left to heroin. I needed it to last. And I just got to the point where my friend's like, listen, I'll do it for you. I'll, you know, inject it because nobody does it themselves the first time. You know, you're too afraid. I was terrified. And like, as I was doing it, I knew I'm like, this is just so wrong. Even you're though like, I was already like four years into five years, almost into the addiction. You like cooked it up for you and everything. We never cooked it. Uh, I was always, you know, pretty well, cause it filters out with the whole cotton and everything. When you put the cotton with the syringe and I did a little amount and it was very little. So I was very scared. So I didn't feel I'm like, all right, we need to do more. And then I did more. Just like a whole warm sensation all over the body. Kind of like you're sitting in a chair. You just like melt in the chair and just like you get to your head. It's a whole head rush. It's a euphoria that I will never get again. And I'm completely okay with that. But it's the be- it's better than sex, better than any adrenaline I've ever... There's nothing comparable in, in this life. You've, you've talked about it several times. Has there ever been a little trigger in there where you've been on the verge of going back? You know, I've heard, I know you've spoken about your story. And I know Mike and I will go out and tell our story, and I, I'm, I'm gonna, I, I know it does affect you. That night or a day later, you start feeling some after effects of you going through that trauma again. And I was always wondering: Is you come out and tell your story? Is there ever a piece of you that says, "I can do it once. I'm so far removed. I can do it once." You know the attic thing. I, 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 I'm I said just to get that euphoria one more time. Absolutely not. No. no, I will never touch that again. I mean, I never say never. It's uh, it's a, every day. I, I know I won't today, and then tomorrow's a new day. I will never ever go back to that life. You know, there's a lot of things that I do to ensure that that euphoria is not real. That euphoria pushes all your problems away for a short period of time, and they're all still there when the euphoria is over. And um, then the euphoria is over, you still have the problems, and you feel worse. Yeah, and worse. Uh, you know, my father always told me that. You know, never, never. Lean into drinking when you have a problem because when you, after you drink all night, you, you're going to wake up the next morning with a hangover and you still have those problems. Yeah. Everybody has their own vice, you know, some are just way more extreme than others and mine, obviously, which I'll talk about, but I use drugs to cope with certain, there was no trauma. It was just inner stuff. You know, I wasn't happy with who I was and it was like a way to like branch out and I just got hooked and realized I was, had that, you know, addict brain and went on um, like seven and a half, eight year, just... Seven and a half, eight years from the opioids to the heroin? The, in the total, total, yeah, total. In total, seven to eight years, and you're 32 years old. Yeah. Wow. My so, 20s, basically. So now you, you talk about being an addict and all that. Was there any addiction in your family before that? Because they say addiction is passed down through... No, which was... Not Crazy. that you know of. Addictive personalities. Maybe way down, you know, but in the gene pool somewhere. But. Ad- addictive personalities, you, they, they manifest themselves in many different ways. Like, I, I always consider myself an addict. So no matter what I do in my life, yeah. it is, like, you, you, your focus on drugs, well, that's the focus of an addict. That, that's the, the main characteristic of what makes an addict is that focus. If you can take your addiction, because, bro, you're always going to be an addict. I hate to tell no, you, it's, it's going to happen. I've accepted it. 
So if you can focus that addiction on something positive and something good, you're going to be either hell of a businessman, you're going to be ultra successful, because I think I always believe the most ultra successful people in the world are the biggest addicts in the world. It's channeling your addiction. Correct. So when I, let's say, um, you know, when I quit smoking, well, I just started running my ass off, like just running my ass off. And I knew I couldn't do both at the same time. Like when I was drinking, I knew I could smoke. So you can do those at the same time, but, but I know running and smoking don't mix. So what kept, what kept me off of smoking and got me through that was, Hey, if I smoke now, I can't run tomorrow. And I really enjoyed it. So let's get back to the needle thing. So you get this needle. Was it a better feeling than snorting it? Was it less? It's not even close. Really? I knew I would never go back to putting anything on my nose after that. And And where were you shooting it, by the way? I mean, it's tough to tell. In your arm? Yeah, like I still, you know, I can say this is a scar, but like I would, it was always in the arms. You know, I would never like, never go in the feet or I really wouldn't. And I looked at that like that. I had people in my car, like in, in the mirror with in their neck and i'm like oh this is so crazy Wait, they say Jimi hendrix wore the headband all the time because he used to shoot in his head it's pot I, I imagine he could but i've i've seen people do it between their toes i haven't yeah. seen him do it but i know the videos of that no I, I picked up somebody and i'm like well where do you shoot it and they're like in between your toes i said god damn because i i remember i had stitches at a kid yeah. as a kid on my finger and they had to put needles in my mm. in the webbing of my fingers the pain was unbelievable. I can't imagine doing that now. It was probably a thicker gauge needle than what you're putting heroin in. Yeah. Still, the pain was incredible. Like all all that. I mean, I imagine the pain gets over pretty quick after you if that Inst- stuff comes in. Instantaneous. Yeah. yeah. Anywhere you know, you could find a vein, and then you know, you know, if you're in the vein based off the blood that comes out of the needle. You know, not to get too graphic, but. No, I want you to, I want, the reason I want you to tell this stuff is somebody who maybe has a prescription problem. To not cross over to like you did. You know, that's that's the point. Maybe they're on the verge. You know, at some point in your journey, somebody, if somebody like you were to speak to the younger version of you, maybe you wouldn't go down that path. You, so that's the value of what you're saying now. Oh, yeah, without a doubt. I, th- I think when you you make that switch, you're giving yourself a pretty minimal chance of surviving or getting clean when, when you get to the needle. Well, so Narcan now gives, it's a built-in excuse. A lot of people use them as a, I know they have Narcan parties where somebody will stay sober and, with the Narcan. And, uh, Never been to one of those. Yeah, so <laughs> the, what they'll do is they get a bunch of heroin and they're not sure whether it's got fentanyl or anything yeah. in there. They'll have somebody do it and somebody will be standing by with Narcan. If they OD, okay, bad heroin. I'm not doing that one. Let's go get some new stuff. Or people will do just try to find their upper limits. To find that ultimate high that you're always searching for, somebody, it's their job, nine times out of ten they don't stay sober, it's their job to hold the Narcan. So there's that safety net. And Narcan, while it is a blessing, it is also a curse. I agree with that. I think it's enabled people, but Mm -hmm. I do think at the same time, you have no idea where that person that you do save could wind up in ten years. You know what I mean? A hundred percent. Absolutely. A hundred percent. The problem I had with, with Narcan, and I think Narcan's a great thing because an, uh, an overdose is obviously not an intentional thing. It's an accident. But how many times can an accident intentionally happen? That's that's where I'm going with that. And that's So Narcan's enabled multiple accidents and just to continue to do what you're doing instead of learning from your Pretty mistakes. much nobody gets sober off of Narcan either. You know, they, they, they OD, they no. get Narcan, they say, oh, you know. I'm going to quit heroin now. Did you ever Narcan? Because when no, I retired. We didn't have Narcan before. It just came it. in after we retired. So uh, here's what I've heard from the cops that I spoke with today who have used Narcan. They wake up mad and they wake up yeah. angry because you took away their high. You took away their high. Yeah, I've been Narcan a few times. How many times? Four. And it was it was nasal? It was the yeah. nasal spray? Two times in the same day by the police, actually. So you're like Nikki Six of Long Island, <laughs> dying two times in one day. It, let's let's walk through the Narcan product. And I know we're getting a little bit off yeah, of this, yeah, but yeah. this is this is fascinating yeah. to me. I don't think I've ever spoken to somebody who's been Narcan. Yeah. I want to hear what the experience is like. It's a scary experience because, you know, not to get like down the rabbit hole, but you do it and then you're gone. There's nothing there. There was no light. There was no nothing. And then all of a sudden you wake back up like almost like an adrenaline shot. And yeah, whether it's EMTs, cops around you, and you have no idea how you got there, takes you a few seconds, and it immediately puts you into withdrawals. So you're immediately sick, and 
when I tell you like Narcan gives you the worst headache, the worst migraine you've ever had times a hundred until you start projectile throwing up, like you have to puke after the Narcan and then you throw up, you, you, you go to the hospital for a half hour, whatever it may be. And then you're sick. And then, you know, nobody's just going to stop from there. You know, it's like, you go, you're out looking for it to get gotta, away the sickness, right? Yeah. Well, cause like, now, now to dull the, that pain, you have to resort to what you know that dulls pain. So would it yeah. be, which would be going back to heroin. Yeah. Would it be a fair assessment? Because you said you, you it was twice in one day. So obviously you got Narcan. Well, that was at the worst of my addiction. Yeah, yeah. You got Narcan. You went back out. You scored. You got high again. Oh, no. I, I got Narcan. The police came to my house. And I, I remember uh, I would o- always like hide the drugs. So I was living at home. And they were asking me, where where is it? And I said I did it all. But I still had it. And I knew that because I knew I was going to need it. So... I literally got home from the hospital and like 30 minutes later did it again and OD'd again and the cops came again in like a two-hour span, three-hour span. Crazy, crazy, insane, insanity way of life thinking. And I was like, oh, I'll just do it. It was like straight fentanyl, like straight from wherever. And the smallest amount when I had a big tolerance and I thought I could do less and the same thing happened. When you got narcan and you went back and you – would it be a fair assessment anyway – to to put a rule in there so if the cops show up or amb- emt show up ambulance whatever and they give you narcan would it be advisable from your experience to put those people in the hospital overnight so they don't have a chance to go back and and do it again that day at like least? a 24-hour stay correct i mean that's gonna be a hell of a 24 hours for him though uh, right but it's gonna suck i mean just to get somebody clean you're you're on the other side of this now so you know yeah. the value of being clean mm-hmm. do you I- think that would be worth it I think it'd be worth it worth it if they were mandated to a detox, like a three, four day detox. I don't think a night is really gonna do much. A three, four detox, you know, three, four days at least with heroin, fentanyl, you'll get the drugs out of your system. And you're alive. And you're alive and like you you'll be in your own thoughts. But they just release people right away and they don't give them that option. Obviously they recommend it, but it's the same story. Now what was going on with your parents at this point? They obviously watched and did their... they did they know about your addiction or did they know you were even using? Yeah, so my parents got divorced when I was thirteen. When I started, I was twenty three. So you know, they always knew I was a partier. Like I liked to party, but I was fine. You know, I did well in school. Like had a good job. And again, justifying. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, you know, and uh, hey, I could still party and do good in school. Yeah, I can you know do whatever I want. I did a, a lot of other recreational stuff. But they didn't, nobody knew for, I would say, like a year and a half, two years in, into the the opioid use, the painkillers. You know, I didn't have too good of a relationship with my father at that point, but my mother, very, very close with. Except, um, except the lack of toilet paper use. Like, hey, Andrew hasn't taken a shit in a month. That's normal. I was living on my own, though. You uh, know, like yeah. a year in, I had moved out because I was making a lot of money and doing really well. I was thinking maybe even like six months in. I remember when I had to explain it to my mom. That'd be heart wrenching. I was so nervous, and you know, I'm I'm an addict, so it was like, how can I manipulate and lie that it's like not that bad? I got it under control. Don't worry about it. It's just it's fun. It's right. You know, I'm a partier. This is what I do. Yeah, yeah. But you know, it's, she took it at that point. It, so many people were hooked, and like we knew people personally, and it was just just painkillers at that point. I think the the hardest was when I, I made the switch to heroin and I told her because I had no I had to f- find ways to get money you know borrow my and it, sh- it was just obvious and you could see like the look of of like devastation and, and disappointment disappointment you know? the worst word a parent could say I know, ever I'm disappointed in you. like I'm not mad at you I'm disappointed in you like, <sighs> yeah I heard that all too often mm. <laughs> from Mike. <laughs> were they accepting did they try to help you or did they at one point turn their back on you my dad did turn his back you know i didn't talk to him for like five years but my mother was always there i had to move back in with her because i ran out of money with my apartment she had never gave up on me um she didn't believe a word i said and didn't trust me typical mom you know not my son yeah not my son um but never gave up on you that's the important thing. Never gave up on me. You know, I was kicked out. Like, I've been to 10, 15 detox, rehabs, everything. I always would come back with uh, a new excuse or whatever it may be, how I'm going to do things different. But she never gave up. And before I got clean, I knew that she had truly, like, given up. And same with my brother as well. 
It's just my brother and I. I think they had come to a realization and point that I was probably going to die. Seems like you. It seems like you're going down that path. Without a doubt. And I think. Well, when you OD two, twice in one day, I mean, that's a, that's, that's, a, that's a highway to death right there. I, I got to be honest with you, man. That's, that's rock and roll, bro. <laughs> that's rock and roll. And he had a show later that night. You know? <laughs> I, know it, I know it was awful. Yeah. I know it was awful, but that's pretty badass. Even when I share, you know, among addicts, they're like, "That's a little intense." That would, you know, that would put you in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. You know? Yeah, right. I mean, that's, that's that's all the greats have done exactly that. Now, there had to be a time because you're sitting here in front of us today. You obviously didn't continue down that path. Mm-mm. What was the worst point? What was that rock bottom where you said, "I got to make a change," or did you forcibly get put somewhere to make that change? I didn't, I didn't forcibly, you know, ever get put anywhere. Because I was never in trouble or anything. No arrests? Only one arrest, but it, it you know, my first one, so they just dropped Possession it. arrest. Yeah, mm-hmm. disorderly conduct. You know, my aunt was a criminal defense lawyer, too. So I thought I had a lot of rock bottom points. Thought that I did, but none of them. You would think like two times in one day, overdosing. You'd think totaling cars, getting lucky, never getting in trouble would be it. There was a point where this was like 2020, where I had done pretty good for a while, and... I relapsed and I had to go to detox, right? And I got out and I had to go to a hotel because apparently I had COVID in detox. So I didn't want to go back to my mom. So I got a hotel. I still had money at that point because I was doing good for a little bit. I remember being in the, I was clean in the hotel room and I was like in my own head, couldn't, you know, go anywhere. Like an addict fresh out of detox, like quarantined. I don't think there's anything worse for me nobody to talk to bounce ideas off to keep you sane yeah nobody and i found out a way to i'm like i'm gonna use i think somebody i use with called me of course the timing always works out (laughs) the first day and he needed a a drug dealer and i was like well i'll go with you i didn't tell him about covid because it's just like i was like all right i'm gonna use you know i'm gonna do whatever i have to do he's like i'll give you some you know he wound up like giving me half and i went back to the hotel and i did it and then I woke up and I was so upset with myself because I was really done at that point. You know, I had been done a lot of times, but I, at that point I was really done. I was so upset with myself and I'm like, I had no hope left, literally none, zero. So it was the morning and I said, I'm done. I don't want to do this anymore. Like, let me end this right now with like a huge shot. Let me just go out where it's peaceful. Like, I don't feel it. You know, I'll feel good for two seconds before I, I fall out. So I did that and I wound up uh, overdosing. I should have died, but I forgot to put the do not disturb sign on the door. And the, the maid came in like two minutes later. That <laughs> bitch. Jesus. <laughs> it's amazing how courteous you become. We, we all become when we're in that spot. I've been there and you, you try, you know, you try to, okay, I don't want to make it this messy. I'm going to make it as peaceful as I can. I don't want any pain. And I mean, we had one guy in here that was ready to wrap himself in, up in a shower curtain, bought a big bottle of Jack Daniels, and he was going to shoot his, shoot himself in the head. But he forgot to go to Wal- He forgot to buy the shower curtain at Walmart, so he couldn't kill himself that night because <laughs> yeah. he's a courteous guy. Yeah, right. yeah, he didn't want he didn't want blood all over for his roommate to clean up. Right, Very right. Nice of him. Yeah. So you're the, she comes in there. They, they take you back to to, uh, to the detox. I went to the hospital, and then uh, yeah, I went to detox again. I had went to detox like three times in three months at that point, and then. I was in detox and obviously they have like, you know, new rules with COVID and not, you know, the first couple of days. Like I said, I had been to many programs in the past, but I was locked in my room. See, it doesn't matter if I'm a day clean, two days clean. I'm not like an isolator. I need to be around people and, you know, being in my own head and, and stuck like that is really the worst thing for me. So an idle mind is the devil's playground. That's the absolute truth. Um, and I, I was so sick and just like looking at myself in the mirror you know, I think we all have realizations with things, but it's, you could be, you know, like, could be bullshit of yourself or you could really feel it. And I felt that like my time on the earth was finished if I didn't stop using. And I, you know, I went to school, like I, I'm a personable guy. Like I have a lot of things that I could do in life. You know, I always got along with everybody. Um, I did well in sales, finance, everything I ever did before the drugs. And I had a realization that like, it was a low point. But it was what I needed to feel to get past, you know, over the hump to like 
really put in the effort and the work to stop and, and live a normal well, that's recovery recovery's work yeah oh people so, don't realize so that work. it's not a, it's not a, it's not as easy as just sitting back and say well i didn't use today yeah so i'm sober no i'm in recovery no it's a, it's a lot of work but i get that I, do you use the one day at a time you know you just said you said it I, earlier on in the show where yeah. i'm just sober today yeah, I never used to think like that. I would always be like projecting it to the future. I uh, want to be three weeks, twenty days, whatever. Yeah, get and my that chip. Would, that would yeah, yeah, that would always screw me up. And I put together a short amount of time, and you know, this hopefully the last time ever. But like my time now, I live with everything I do like truly one day at a time. But you trip sometimes, and and if you were ever do go back. Because you're in the you're in the studio. Mike and I always consider people coming in the studio as part of our family. We yeah. become invested in your story. If you were to ever trip, doesn't mean you can't get back up. But the whole thing with with the one day at a time is it's it's about keeping your world small. You can accomplish anything if your world's small. I was just saying that. I mean, if you set these goals for you know what, I'm going to be sober for a week. It's really unrealistic. Let's get through this day. Let me get through this hour. Yeah, exactly. And then and then an hour becomes a day. Think about so Mike. Now I, it becomes a game in your head too. Right. Okay. I was I was good for this day. But that no, can be, be applied. That can be applied to everything, Mike. We're we're run, we we. Well, you used to be a runner. Now you're just getting fat. It's <laughs> a guy I look up to, by the way. Yeah. Um, no, I'm the second one. Second one. Up. Second one. Um, <laughs> Top three, though. When you were out there having those tough runs, how, what was your strategy? Because no, get through it. I guarantee you, the strategy was the same as mine. So if I was out there having a tough run, I would go. I would look at the yep. telephone pole. Yeah. Get yep. to that telephone pole. Yeah. Let me get to that telephone pole. And set so, sights for myself. Get to this intersection. Okay, oh. once you get that intersection, okay, let's get the next intersection. All that is 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 keeping your world small to try to get through this suffering, and it's an amazing thing. How long do you have clean? I will have a year next week. No, Beautiful. Literally, and, and, and yeah, well, whenever you know. When, when next week? The twelfth is the year. So the twelfth, this show here. What's what's next? So this Sunday is the sixth. This show is going to air on what the thirteenth. This is going to air, and this is perfect yeah, timing. That's pretty cool. This is perfect <laughs> timing. I want to take this minute and congratulate you on your one year of sobriety. As this show comes out, this is your this is you rewriting your future, and I think it's wonderful what you're doing. Well, see, Kev, that's why I set it up for this. Oh, of course you did. Yeah, you know, I'm the one who did all the you know, and, and I said you know I I talked to him before, and I said you know the twelfth, the thirteenth, perfect. Let's go. <laughs> 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 so if you saw somebody going down the same path you went down off of your own playbook, what do you think that you would advise them? Many things. I become, you know, being in recovery and doing the self-work and what I do on a daily basis with health, wellness, nutri- everything. I have become so passionate about. So your way out is health and wellness. Oh, yeah. Yeah. One million percent. Right. Uh, and, you know, helping other people with that and too. Channeling your addiction again. Correct. Yeah. Definitely. I mean, you look like you're in shape. You look like you do your stuff. Is it running, gym, that stuff? Yeah, I do a gym. I have a trainer. Like, I log everything I eat. It's all natural living and stuff, you know, where I used to just eat chocolate when I was using, (laughs) you know. See, at least two guys in here are in shape. Then we got Kevin, you know. Listen, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? I got the the looks. I can't have the body, too. (laughs) I would take everything away from you. One thing real quick, getting back to when you were using. Did you, like, have a girlfriend or anything at that point? No, I... Or were just girls in and out of your life and then they saw what you're doing or you just had no want or need for a girlfriend? I think it's a funny question because a lot of people ask me that and it's like, I did not care about the opposite sex. Like, I did not care about females when I was using. It was only the drugs, like... You, then you and Mike have a lot in common because he doesn't care about females now. <laughs> no, females don't care about me. <laughs> <laughs> Might be better off. Yeah, right. yeah this is true. La, 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 la. I'm just staying away from that one. Yeah. If you if you saw... Uh, not to cut you off because I yeah. thought there was an important point about your road to recovery and your new... I, wanna, I don't want to say your new addiction, but your new lifestyle. You see, If you see another kid, you know, hooked onto the opiates... What do you think you'd tell them? For me, there's a reason. Nobody just starts with heroin, a very small select people. Uh, there's a reason people resort to drugs in the first place. And you may not find that out right away, but there is a reason. And people know you know, the exterior, the most of it. And for me, what I would tell somebody, you know, I've spoken a lot of places already. It's okay to not be okay. I think people mask not being okay, and there's also a stigma with mental health. And like to get help and to speak to somebody, 
also I'm, I'm, you know, a big advocate of like, you know, meetings, uh, sponsor the actual work. I would say to somebody stop now, obviously while you're ahead, you know, I could tell them my whole story. It's a lot for a lot of people. Reverse that. Do you think you would have listened to your own advice right there? If you were that young person who was being well, spoken that's, to? That's the thing is, are yeah. you going to listen? Is somebody going to listen when it depends how deep they're in? Uh, you just can't shake somebody. You can't. Yeah. It's either they're ready or they're not, or they die or they survive. And there's, you know, they say jails, institutions, and deaths are death for pretty good reason because that's where addiction to heroin leads. When, my, when I was in law enforcement and we had drug addicts come and talk to like high school students or something like that, they always had a picture of themselves at their worst time, you know, to see what they looked like then and see what they look like now. Do you have any pictures of yourself? Like, uh, I have videos. Do you really? When I was on fentanyl and no my mom would take them. It was like I was possessed and I was a different person. And I was also extremely out of shape. I didn't look good. You know, uh, I... I don't like watching the videos because it's it's. A oh, I'm very, sure it's tough for you. Yeah, it's but very, it could be a learning. It could be a disgust. learning experience for someone else. Oh, I could easily. You show know, look the look at me then and look at me now. Yeah. If you if you are willing to share one of those videos with me, send it to me. Yeah, yeah. And we'll put this up. We'll put it up as a precursor when this show airs, because ultimately what you're trying to do is you're not trying to persuade people to use heroin. Oh no, no. definitely not. You're trying to persuade people to not use heroin, and maybe if they get a little window into into what you went through might have some greater impact. Now we're coming to the end of this thing here. And I always ask all my guests this same question. You've gone through this, this hell seven, eight year hell. What do you think it's taught you? What do you think your suffering has taught you? You know, in a sick, twisted way, I wouldn't change anything. Damn. I said the same. Th I'm telling you, I said the same thing about the guy who shot at me. He's like my angel. Like that's the, the my defining moment. That's, that's a amazing. Third, that's a third guy he looks up to. <laughs> but that's amazing. So something, if you take heroin and manifest it as a as a physical being, that is your demon, or what you would always saw as your demon, but it's actually turns out to be your angel. Absolutely, it's weird. I think because, you know, I like I said, I started when I was doing really well, and I was going down a path to become a person who had a lot of money, but was a terrible person. And I think, you know, everything in your life is put there at a point, whatever it may be, a certain time for a reason. And it made me go through that and made me find, you know, the other side to where I continuously have to do self-work, work on my character, my defects, completely change everything about who I am and things that who I was before, the, you know, the addiction started. I'm like truly at a place where I'm content and happy with who I am and how I treat other people and the relationships I have. And I would not be in that place if it wasn't for drugs, you know, as messed up as it sounds. And I'm very lucky and grateful that I have the opportunity to live a second life, basically. It could have been all different. Yeah, or I could be dead, you know? If you didn't put the do not disturb sign oh, on <laughs> I wouldn't be here right now, you know? It's... Amazing something so small like that could really save your life and change your life. There are little fortuitous moments in life, and I'm certainly glad that you didn't put that up there. I'm glad that you came in here today to tell your story. I think it's um, it's heart-wrenching. I can't. I, I feel bad for your parents because they had to watch you go through how, this. How is your parents still with us? Yeah. How is your relationship with them now? Amazing. Yeah. Uh, you're back talking to your father. And, yeah. And uh, your brother knew about the addiction and everything? And yes, but he, you know works for the federal government, D.C. He's very different than I was, so he's very uneducated. <laughs> but, you know, he's coming up for my anniversary celebration. Uh, right. And my family, they are just so happy. And they're just, the, the change and, and my, like, you know, the addiction to health and wellness, waking up every, just things that I do now, they just, the trust is there. And, and well, make sure you send me a picture yeah. of that celebration, please. I'd love to yeah, put it up. Yeah, absolutely. We, we could put that right up on the website also. We'll put it right up there. Andrew, thank you very much for coming in, talking about your suffering story. I'm, I'm sorry for what you went through, but it's it's a great story. It really is. Well, it's I'm a success not sorry story. because you seem to be you seem to have your head screwed on straight right now. So you had to go through that in order to appreciate what you have now. Of course. So that's going to do it for this episode of the Suffering Podcast, the Suffering of Heroin. And let's think about all the stuff that we learned today. One of the things that I learned is ODing twice in one day is some rock and roll shit, brother. <laughs> <laughs> To an addict, drugs become as important as food and water. 
The euphoria of drugs is not real. Keep your world small. Don't let your past define you. Write your own story. Most importantly, it's okay not to be okay. Sometimes your demons become your angels. And that's going to do it for this episode of The Suffering Podcast, The Suffering of Heroin. Follow us on social media, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Twitter. And we're going to see you on the next episode of The Suffering Podcast.